If you get a Bible that we are giving you, it's page 658, 1 Peter chapter 4. Before we, uh, before we start talking, let's uh, pray. Ask for God's Spirit's help. God, I'm always reminded that uh, your truth is foolishness apart from your spirit working at heart. So my prayer this morning is for every heart in, in this room, the chapel, and in the conference center right now listening to me, that your spirit would do his work. Be precise, Father. I pray that you uh, encourage us in the places where you're, you have done a work, and it's clear that we're a different person. God, where we are still out of sorts, I pray that you would bring enough conviction for us to obey. God, thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you for this text through Peter, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So here's a question. How do you respond to emergencies? <laughs> you would think 911, right? But uh, everybody's different. And uh, for whatever reason, there is a lot of surveys being taken on how people respond to that. And uh, I, I found this one very interesting. This survey found that when emergency, faced with an emergency, 55% of people will update their Facebook status. <laughs> 35% will um, send Twitter messages. Uh, 10% will use their smartphone to take a video to post on YouTube. And 5% will call 911. Interesting. And, and don't laugh, you know, gasp like it's, we're just in that world. I don't think people instinctively prepare themselves for crisis. I don't think we wake up today and, hey, today could be the day. Better do something today. Be ready for it today. And yet everything Peter has been telling us now we're in the fourth chapter. It's a suffering manual for a church that he tells us are going to suffer. Emergencies are coming, right? You're going to deal with pressure. And it's, it's not like pressure you deserve. In fact, Peter even confronts that. If you suffer for doing wrong, you get what you deserve. But if you suffer for righteousness' sake, that's the, that's the totality of Peter's message. Everything is about to us, the church, to a suffering, scattered, persecuted, dispersed church, how to suffer well, how to respond to it. And, and, and particularly this morning is um, this idea of being prepared. Because I think when stuff like this happens, people act surprised. Like it was going so smooth. Life was good. I didn't need that persecution. I didn't need that pressure. I wasn't ready for that. I'm shocked. I don't even know how to respond to it. And yet, everything we've read so far has, has should have brought us to the point of believing that it should happen. In fact, in chapter 2, don't go there, but chapter 2, Peter said, to this you've been called. He even told us God's intention was suffering. Somehow, in the kingdom of God and the purposes of God, he calls Christians to go through suffering. James says that you should count it joy for one reason, because God has an intention with problems to develop your character, your maturity, your completeness. You're not lacking anything. In fact, look at verse 12 of chapter 4 um, as we get started here. I think this is how people respond to suffering. Peter says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I think that's how every believer reacts to suffering. Unless we are really intentional, really purpose-driven about God's intention with difficult things, we'll act like this verse that Peter writes to a suffering church. Like, why are you acting surprised? Didn't I tell you it was a call? Didn't you know it was coming? Don't you live such a different life that don't you know how the world is going to react to it? So this, 
This whole letter has been about preparation. In fact, I would call these, these first 11 verses of chapter 4 Peter's get ready for it sermon. Kind of prepare yourself, like real practical, tangible things. Don't be surprised. Don't be unprepared. Instead, be very prepared because it's, it's coming. Let, let me read the first 11 verses. And there are eight um, observations we're going to make out of the text this morning. And uh, pray that God makes his application. Here's, here's verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the, with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they were surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, some uh, of the writers that I read have entitled this small section um, Stewards of God's Grace, or based on what we even talked about last week, is that we're living out Christ's victory. I think a probably more appropriate takeaway, remember it title would be, don't be surprised by suffering, be prepared. So if you just capture that, you know that these first 11 verses are Peter trying to tell you what's coming and how to get ready for it. And so here's, here's where we're at today. I remind you just what we talked about last week, really important that in the, in the context of Peter's letter to this suffering church, he reminds them that you're going to suffer for doing righteous things. Remember that you're going to suffer the persecution of the world against the Christ in you. And so uh, we prep for that. We talked about this perspective of, of why to suffer for doing right, how to do it. And he says, first of all, to understand the gospel brings us to God. This huge chasm that exists between holiness and sinfulness, God has bridged. So that's why you suffer for righteousness sake. You suffer for righteousness sake because there's victory in Christ and for every one of his followers. So all of us who put our faith and hope and trust in Christ know that the victory is ours too. And so that's why you suffer for righteousness sake. And that we understand that God's salvation is certain and it's gracious. And then the last thing we talked about is that Christ is already reigning. So suffering church, the reason why, the reason why you suffer for righteousness sake is because there's no confusion on who's in control of your suffering, nor your story, nor your life. Christ is already reigning in the story, right? So here we are now, done with chapter three, this first 11 verses, Peter gives us eight things to be prepared for suffering. Here's the first one, be resolved. Verse one. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now, this is the time of year, um, at least for some, maybe many, where we start making resolutions for 2013, don't we? Like, I'm doing it. 
I'm, I'm bound and determined to join a gym. I've, I've got a gym right next to my house, and I can't avoid it now. It's right there. If I had to drive another mile, wouldn't do it, but there it is. It's right next to my house, and I'm committed to trying to move, work out a little bit. I've got to. Um, I don't want to die too young. So I'm making that kind of commitment, but what Peter's talking about aren't these short-term um, lists of goals like a New Year's resolution. He says something way bigger and way more intense. Arm yourselves. Peter uses a military term to talk to the church about how to get ready for suffering. Arm yourselves, he says. It's a military term. Getting ready for battle. It's serious prep for suffering. Do you understand? And I've never been in the military, nor have I ever been in a war. But of the words that Peter chooses to tell us how to prep, he says, you need to prep to win. It's a life and death struggle. It's intense. Now, how many of us prep that way for any kind of suffering we don't even know is coming and don't want? Very few of us. And yet Peter says to this church, you need to arm yourselves. A very interesting statement he makes at the end of the verse. A lot of people are confused by its meaning, but he says this. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered the flesh has ceased from sin. So some wonder, is Peter saying that if, that if you suffer, if you have people persecute you, like physically, does that free you from sin? Are you now able to escape? That's not Peter's intention here. I think there's two possible meanings. Both are true, but I think he's intentional about one of them. One is the possibility that Peter's talking about death. Like what's the ultimate Suffering is to give your life. The ultimate pushback is for the world to hate you so much that they want to end your life. And so it's a truth. When you die, you're free from sin, isn't it? No longer are we carried around by this body of sin and flesh that wars with the Spirit of God in us. It's gone. We're free and victorious, right? That's a truth. Peter might have some of that in mind. I think what Peter really has in mind here is referring to the faith and growth in our life that comes through persecution the development that happens in our hearts when, when we suffer. In other words, suffering purifies us. Suffering brings about maturity and endurance, according to James. Suffering um, grows us up. Suffering makes us take our faith seriously. Everybody in a foxhole prays. Everybody in suffering, when there aren't man-made answers to the problem, gets serious about God and his control over the problem. What happens in suffering is I get really clear-minded about the truth. God, I don't like this. I don't want this. This is too much. It's going to crush me. And it pushes Christians to their knees. Faith comes out of suffering servants. It does. And if you've lived long enough, you could say amen to that. That's a true statement. When the pressure's on, God gets more real. It's when we're fat and sassy after Thanksgiving, going, oh, good. Jesus, stay on the side until I need you. But when crisis comes, oh, my gosh, it gets intense. And that's Peter's point here. When we suffer, when we suffer that way, we all fight sin. We all push back on the things. Some of us in our paranoia think God is punitive. Oh my gosh, I'm suffering because God's mad at me. Well, that's a thought that's not true. But we 
do triage of our life and assessment of our life. We try to clean up our life to make sure that it isn't true. Like, God, I hope you're not mad at me. I hope you're not punishing me. Although God doesn't do that, God might bring discipline in our lives. But suffering that, that Peter's crowd is dealing with is the suffering for following Christ. And when it gets that intense, and when we get that serious about how intense it is, and when we get that dependent on God, sin gets more exposed We get more intense about it. We get more uncomfortable with it. It becomes more obvious to us. We confess it more and we shun it more, correct? I think that's what Peter has in mind. First thing he says is be resolved. Second thing he says to prepare ourselves for suffering is make a break. Verse two and three, make a break. So he says, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. So here's a very easy principle. You ready? You can't follow hard after Jesus and live the life you used to live. Period. You can't deal with suffering and live a totally unconverted, sinful life. You can't live like the world, is is Peter's point. I I love the way the NIV writes this. I think it's a little bit clearer. Let me read it, and you just kind of absorb the flow here. Peter says, as a result, he does not live this this suffering saint does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. A suffering follower of Christ looks at his past and says, I've been there, I've done that, and it's produced absolutely nothing. So we make a clean break. Um, I've told you this before, but I've only competed in one competitive athletic event, wrestling. I was pretty serious about it. Um, and every time I get to this time of year, specifically Thanksgiving, I reflect because I spent countless years eating a small salad and a drink of water for Thanksgiving, trying to keep weight down for, for wrestling. And here was the end run. The end run was that I might be competitive because the other guy was doing it. The, the, the point of it was, was to be on the team and to win, right? And we had to make self-controlled sacrifices like a 15-year-old high school kid looking at pounds of turkey and saying, not today. Small example, but that's sort of what Peter's saying to the church. You've seen what the world has. You've done what the world has. It can't bring security and it can't bring strength in the midst of suffering. So I think uh, there's several problems in the church universal's um, life today. But I think one of its biggest is the ability to say no. Um, If you were to assess us just generically, we're as busy as everybody else. We, are, uh, we indulge ourselves and our kids as much as anybody else. We work too much just like anybody else. We spend too much like everybody else. We watch the wrong things like everybody else. We value what the world values. That's not me peeking into your checkbook. This is just assessments of people who ask Christians, who walk out of church buildings, what do you live for? Who do you live for? 
And somehow the averages turn out that we're not that much different than the world. And Peter's saying, listen, if you're going to be prepared for the suffering God has called you to, that will happen someday in your life. That if you, you know that that past living the way you used to, to behave will not do you any good. Live for the will of God. And his point is simple. We've tried the American version of sex, drugs, and rock and roll and found it, found it not just wanting, but a burden. Because you always have to wake up the next day. Does, ple- does sin have pleasure for a moment? Absolutely, otherwise we wouldn't do it. But it destroys. Some of you right now are listening to me and you're hearing me say sin destroys and you're thinking about your sin. And you know that you're on the cusp of destroying relationships, possibly your marriage, because of sin. You know it destroys reputations that you love Jesus, but if this gets out, oh my gosh, no one will ever believe you. It destroys families. It it brings debt in your life. It leaves us empty. Peter says, make a clean break. We don't live the way the world lives. We don't hang out where the world hangs out. Third way that Peter says to prepare yourself for suffering is he says to expect resistance. Verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when they do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Now, Peter's talking about the world who is persecuting the church. And he says, they're surprised. Two specific things he says. One is that they're surprised. The other truth is it's going to get worse. (laughs) Happy day. Friends and family and co-workers, they're going to be confused about your behavior. You used to be this way. They knew you that way. They were at parties with you that way, and suddenly you don't think that way. You don't do those things. You confess different things. And here's the reality of the gospel. Your changed life will convict unchanged lives. That's what it does. That's why the gospel's an offense. Do you understand You can be loving and you can be open and you can pray for lost people, but if you live for righteousness, light exposes darkness. Gospel is an offense. You don't have to be offensive. You should not be offensive. But if you live for Jesus, it will expose sin. Some of you have homes and you've got a division in your home. You've got a believing father or a believing mother and an unbelieving spouse. And the tension is clear. And the tension is because it's so easy that one's a jerk and one's not a jerk. The tension is because of Jesus. There's a different rudder in the story now. There's a different compass. Something drives the believer more than the world. And Peter says, if you want to prepare yourself for the suffering God has called you to, it's inevitable, and you don't go backwards. You make a clean break. Be prepared for that. And be prepared for the resistance. Don't be surprised about it. Jesus told us, didn't he say, they're going to hate you because of me? Didn't he say that? I don't think we're prepared for that truth to become a reality. So let me stop for a second and just make a point. Maybe let the Holy Spirit do the preaching now. Um, So if you call yourself a believer and you've never, ever felt the resistance from the world, Would you ask yourself a question? Why? If you live like Jesus is your king, if you confess that he is Lord, 
if you say no to sin and ungodliness, if you put yourself in a position to bless and not curse, if you are, cut me some slack, the image of Christ in the world around you, and nobody cares, I think that's an impossibility. There is this possibility that you claim Christ but live no different of a life and your life wouldn't offend anybody. You, you do the exact same things you used to do. That's worth thinking about, right? And maybe what God wants to say to you, like Peter says to the church, expect resistance, that maybe you go, I've never had resistance, and maybe God's saying, it's because you've never taken me seriously. Mark Driscoll said this, fools marching off to hell will encourage you to join in the parade and criticize you if you don't fall into step. That's true. Fourth, fourth way that Peter says to prepare yourself for suffering, verses 5 and 6, he says, see the big picture. But they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. That through judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Why would anyone be radical about following Jesus? Peter says, here's why. There are two judgments, the judgment of the world and the judgment of God. Here's why people would be radical about following Christ. One judgment, it comes from men's observations. The other one from the ruler, king, sustainer of all creation, that judgment. And so why would people be radical about Christ? Because there is a God. His name is Jesus. He's real. He deserves our devotion. And so Peter says, there's two judgments here. You you clearly, by living intentionally for Christ, are going to get judged by the world around you. Don't be surprised by that. But there's a greater judgment. Peter says, following Christ the way we should follow Christ, as Jesus said, with heart, soul, mind, and strength, means you won't do well on one of the judgments, (laughs) the world's judgment. Therefore, we have to live our lives consumed with what God thinks, consumed with what God values. Peter's audience suffered and were condemned by men, and many of them died for that but they were approved of by God. Do you see it? you see why he says that in verses five and six? The gospels preach even to those who are dead, meaning those saints who heard the gospel and put their faith and trust, even though they were judged the way people are judged by the flesh, you know, I don't like you, I don't want you, you're an idiot or whatever, you die for, but they are, they are brought to life by the spirit the way God does in verse six. So here's the test. Which one of these judgments do you do well on? Would God look at your life and say, yep, that's the life I've died to give you? Or would your friends and the world around you look at you and go, yeah, he's a great dude. I got no issues. Um, he's just like me. In fact, when I'm, when I'm doing my thing, I call him first because we are like this. Fifth way to prepare for suffering, Peter says, is be self-controlled and sober-minded. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. This phrase has the idea of, get this, preserve your sanity by being sober. (laughs) Think about it. Preserve your sanity by being sober. In other words, don't live out of control. The tyranny of the urgent crowds out the most important, doesn't it? You're just on the treadmill. You're just adding and adding and going and going. And what 
gets left out is the word of God in your life, prayer in your life, church in your life, the one another's in your life, your wife, your husband, your children, the intentionality of being a leader in your home, to be the kind of worker that, that will give God glory, relationships go. Even of that list, that small list I gave you, if you look at that and go, gosh, I feel bad, you even brought that up then my guess is if that's true and if you're weak at those things, then you're too busy. You know, I know this in my own life and I think it's universally true. Sometimes we think that, that we have to be intentional about the things that we do. And I, I think it's just the opposite. I think we do everything without thinking. I think we have to be more intentional about what we don't do. If you're like me, you just run into stuff. You just go, 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 go. And if it doesn't say sin, stay out, will kill you, I run into it. And I just keep adding it and adding it and adding it. I don't think very much about that, but I have to slow down and go, should I do that? Should I add that to my life right now? Should I get involved with that? Would that cost me too much here? Would I not have my devotion life there? Would I cost my children this there? Should I do that? It takes way more intention to do less than to do more. In fact, I love this. The Greek idea of self-controlled sober living is contrasted to the word mania, which is always described demon possession. So in Peter's mind, the flip side of that, if you live this lack of self-controlled life, this lack of sobriety in your life, you're acting as if you're possessed by a demon. No control, no ability to control, no ability to say no, even to good things, because you have to leave room for the great things. And Peter says, if you're going to be a suffering church that's prepared to deal with it, then if your calendar and your daytimer are jacked full of duty, 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 go, 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 and you've got no time for devotion and relationship and the one another's and your family and even just quiet, then more than likely you won't be prepared to suffer. It'll get the best of you. So Christians set priorities, kingdom ones. And sometimes it means they make time to do less. Make sense? Here's the sixth thing that Peter says to prepare for suffering, and that is love others earnestly. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Let me break your heart. Love isn't about emotion. It's about effort. I have too many conversations with people with broken marriages in our church and I feel like I spend most of the time telling them what love isn't because they've bought the, they bought the TV movie version of infatuation and feeling. Now, does it come at that sometimes? Sure it does, but it doesn't last long, does it? The love the Bible talks about, the love that it commands, the love that Peter tells the church to prepare to, uh, to suffer in is, get this, just get the picture, grit your teeth, determination, committed love. I'm not gonna stop. And that doesn't mean I find you interesting or even fun to hang around with, but I'm not gonna quit. Most couples, I mean, when we do weddings, it's typically in this room, and they come walking down this aisle, and they stand here, and they make a vow to each other and to God, and I guess all the witnesses in the room that I'm in this, and they use the word love, but they have no idea. I got it, they're giving it their best shot. It's all that they know, but they don't know enough to even use the word properly because they're walking down and going, I, 
you complete me. Mm -mm. All you need to do is put a sinner with a sinner in a covenant relationship called marriage, and you watch. You watch the sparks fly. And you won't realize how much sin you have or how much sin they have, and you wouldn't have known unless you put yourself in the context of this covenant relationship. And, and the point of making a decision above infatuation or feelings for this person means that, that it's, not, it's connected to commitment. Love is a decision. And I'm not trying to remove all the romance. There is romance in marriage. There is romance in relationship. There is. Um, but the reason why they're blowing up all around us is because nobody gets love. Everyone gets infatuation. That's where affairs come from. Right? Nobody gets love. Peter says, you getting ready for suffering? Then love each other earnestly. So my guess is I'm just picturing this suffering church that love might be a difficult thing once in a while, right? When pressure comes on me, I'm just going to confess this, I don't get more winsome. I get more intense. The worst parts of me come out when problems show up. Now, that's a bad commentary, but I've been around a lot of people, and it's pretty typical. If there's ugly stuff, it comes out around then. Pressure's on, trying to fix it, all the, all the things that aren't winsome. And Peter says, in the midst of that pressure, love earnestly, love deeply. And when you're sinned against, and you will be, that's what happens in pressure with sinners committed to each other in a love relationship then let love do the talking, not gossip, not slander, not speaking the story or spreading the story. Forgive endlessly like Jesus said an unlimited number of times. Keep the story small. Should sin be dealt with? Absolutely it should be dealt with, but there are some sins that you don't have to nitpick over. The ones that someone didn't mean to do. They, there are un unintentional things that we commit against each other. There are, there are minor offenses that Peter suggests here that we can cover over. We don't have to make mountains out of everything because love covers over, right? I'm not saying walk out of here and just don't deal with sin. Deal with sin. But there are some of you are way hypersensitive and you need to lighten up and you need to be able to absorb being sinned against a little bit. Chuck Swindoll said this, we are most like beasts when we kill. We're most like men when we judge and we're most like God when we forgive. Put that in your love relationships and see how it feels. Live like God in that way. And Peter suggests to a suffering church to do that. Here's the seventh thing to prepare for in suffering. He says in verse 9, be hospitable. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Um, in Peter's day, this was a very clear, tangible way to live out the last command to love earnestly. And, and hospitality was an essential part of the early church's lifestyle. Um, traveling believers didn't have hotels or motels and apostles coming through didn't. So they kind of lived with each other. And I kind of think that's part of why he adds the statement, be hospitable without grumbling, because my guess is they're up to here with hospitality. Fair? I mean, there's somebody always over. And you could get a little whiny about that. And Peter suggests don't give up doing that good thing of hospitality. So how do, you, how do you apply this to our 
context today. Does it mean that you've got to have somebody in your house all the time? I don't think that's what it means. I think what it means is to be open to others. It means to let people into your life. This is a very non-American truth. Um, in fact, I said this last hour, and I'll repeat it. Church has been re- redefined in the last 20 years uh, in America to build a, a comfortable zone for people like this who don't want others in their life. Uh, these are autonomous churches. They have names for people who come in, unchurch this guy or unchurch that guy. And, and basically, you don't have to know anybody. Nobody has to know you. You come and leave as you will. No commitment and no people. Well, the Bible doesn't know anything about a church like that. It knows nothing about believers uncommitted or unrelating to one another. All it ever says is we are our brother's keeper. We're in this faith together. You're not designed to grow alone. And, and yet we're building churches to make people who don't want to be hospitable feel okay. Peter says be, be open to people in your life. I've heard pastors say this as a joke. Ministry would be great without people. And it's a, it's a giggle, but you know what? It's really sad because ministry is people. M- ministry is people. People are the heart of Christ. So something I'm learning, I'm going to give you a little tip on, on what this might look like in your own life. I would suggest that you be open to God's interruptions. Be open to what I call the divine appointments in your life. Um, I've had a few moments like this. I'm a, I'm a driven guy, I think, and I'm, I get really focused. So whatever the task is, whatever the job is, it's there, and everything else gets blurry. Do you understand? I mean, I'm, I wrestle with this all the time. Something has to get done. It's about two miles away, and there could be thousands of people between me and that, and I won't see them because I got to get it, whatever that is. So I wrestle with that. So I, this is confronting me. This is a couple years ago. Um, clearly a couple years ago, I was... Um, trying to be in shape, and I would run. I hate running. I'm not a good runner, but I do it because it's good for you, right? And, uh, and uh, I run on this track when I run, and I have this hooded sweatshirt, and, and it has a really deep hood, like the, you know, like the Grim Reaper kind of hood. It hangs, it hangs about down to here, and it traps all the heat, and that's what I'm used to, and so I would just run. And I did it sort of to be secluded, too, because I, I don't want to, hey, 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 all day long at working out. So I was running one day around the track. I was probably mile four. My heart was about here, boom, 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 blowing up my head. And I see these feet running along next to me. And I thought, I'll just ignore them. Maybe he's passing me. Well, four, four laps later, those feet are still there. And I, really? And I th- then I started going through the process in my mind. This guy knows me. He wants me to talk. I don't know if I can breathe. Should I talk to him? And so I was sort of in my mind getting grumpy, and I took off my hood, and sure enough, it was a guy, he wanted to chat. And I, I went through this whole process of going, I didn't, I just want to do what I want to do. I had something in mind here, and I don't want you to interrupt me. But this is where this truth confronts me. Peter says, always be hospitable. Always be open to God bringing his divine interruptions of people into you. You don't know when, you don't know why. It isn't listed in the convenient section of your life. It's typically inconvenient. You'll be walking between here and getting your kids in children's ministry to go home because you got a roast in the oven and it's going to burn and a divine interruption will show up and you need to be hospitable. So do I. 
It means to be generally glad to see people, invite them out to coffee, have them over for dinner, go out to dinner with them. It means to serve other people. That's the point that Peter makes. In the midst of a suffering church, do this together. Be hospitable with one another. Care about people. There's one last thing that Peter says to prepare yourself for suffering. It's in verses 10 and 11. He says, do what God made you to do. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We know this, at least we should as Christians, at the moment of conversion, God gifts us with gifts to serve the bodies, multiple gifts some, many gifts others. But I want you to notice a couple of things that Peter says about gifts. One of them, he calls them varied. The word means many colored. There's lots of gifts and every Christian should be serving in some way. So if you're here today, your lucky day, because I'm talking to you, if your version of church as a Christian is your hour and a half commitment every other week except for holidays kind of commitment, then you're clearly not obeying this part of the scriptures. Because God saved you and I to serve. As many as there are people, that's how much God has put the variety of giftedness in the body so that when we live out together, every need is appropriately met. Do you understand? There's another thing he says about these gifts, and, they're in, and that is the focus of them. You see it at the end of verse 10? as good stewards of God's varied grace. So here, gifted person, here's what you need to know about your gifts. Your gifts are not for you. They're for others. God's grace is on parade when God's gifted people serve. And if you're choosing to sit it out, if you're on the sidelines going, it's got to be for somebody else, then some gift of grace is not happening. Do you see what I'm saying? Are you afraid to admit it? Come on now. Here's the truth. Let me give you some things to remember about gifts. God gives them endless number. You can look in Paul's writings and see Quite extensive lists, but those lists weren't intended to be exhaustive. It wasn't saying find one of these and that's who you are. Sometimes it's a blend. Sometimes it's many things. Sometimes it's something that's not in that list. It's a pretty good list, but it's not a conclusive list. So God gives them. So right now, some of you um, are probably wrestling with, well, what's mine? Well, I'm going to talk about that in a second. I just mentioned this. The other truth about gifts is that they're used for others. I talk to a lot of young pastors, and, and I'm getting sick and tired of hearing them talk about their desire to teach. Um, I would rather they cared about people. Gifts aren't meant to have you feel like you're expressing yourself. The goal is others. It's not about self-fulfillment. One last thing you need to know about gifts is gifts are discovered in service. You're sitting here going, well, Tim, you're, that's convicting, the fact that God gave us gifts and I'm sitting on the sidelines, I'm doing nothing. Well, how do I find out my gifts? And you might go, well, I'm going to go home and I'm going to stand in front of my spiritual mirror and I'll wait till God gives me an answer. Then I'll come back and say, God called me to preach. <laughs> and I'll say, no, he didn't. Um, <laughs> here's how gifts are discovered. 
get dirty, get busy. You get busy doing something that somebody asks you to do because there's a need to be done and watch people respond to it. Hey, can you do that again? Because when you did that, it really blessed us. And we love it when you do it. And somehow you're going to feel in your own heart like, I really, I really love doing that. I, somehow that connected with me. I felt the smile of God on my life when I was serving. You discover what your gift is by getting busy and serving. There are all sorts of ways to serve. You know that, right? We, we extend, you know, that's why I said I'd come back to this Christmas Eve children's ministry thing. And I watched that gloss on your eyeballs when I said it. When you said, clearly they're going to go to that group that does that every year, and I can come for my hour and a half. No, they won't. Here's what's going to happen. 4,000-plus people are going to walk in here. Probably, probably over 1,000 of them don't ever walk in here. And we get to be missionaries to their children and to their life. You could do the short-term service with your eyes closed. You could be open-handed, and who knows? God might call you to children's ministry. Get busy. There are things like redemption communities. Maybe God's called you to lead others in discipleship. And you've just been too afraid because you're too, you're too extended. Your life is too busy, and so you don't have any room in your calendar. Well, maybe, maybe that part of Peter saying stop living manic lives is part of that issue. Maybe some of you should go, I'm probably more suited for teenagers and student ministries has hundreds of kids on a weekly basis that they encourage, 710, the 20-somethings, women's ministry, small group tables. Things that we do here, we could all be busy forever. And that doesn't even stop you from all the other ways that you can serve constantly the kingdom of God all around you. Do you understand? It's not enough to hear this, church. It's not enough to go, yeah, that probably sounds right. It's probably what Peter meant. But I have no intention of obeying it. Um, Christians should be doing something because when you're doing something in the hands of God, you make an impact in his world. And that's what he's called us to do. So here's some closing thoughts as we leave here today. Remember, this, this first section was written to the suffering church to prepare it for suffering. So if you're just going to let this go in one ear out the other, and if you're not going to prepare yourself, then I want to tell you where this is going. Be ready to be overwhelmed. Be ready to feel like you're getting crushed in suffering because that's the only thing left. If you won't prep, if you won't kingdom mind your way through this, if you won't take Peter's instructions from God to us, then all I know that's happening in the future with suffering is that you're going to be worn out by it. Here's the second thing I want you to leave with. I want you to leave with this idea that you embrace your separation. When you live really for the kingdom of God, you stick out. In fact, the gospel is an offense to those who don't believe, isn't it? And you can be loving and you can be caring and, and you can be like affectionate and you can be all the things that, that, that at one side the world would love, but your righteous living and your conviction and your confession just exposes darkness and they don't like the darkness. Just like I didn't like the darkness until God gave me light. I want you to be embracing your separation. Sometimes Christians suffer with that and go, oh, I don't want them not to like me, and so you compromise. And so you're not ready for suffering. One last thing. Slow down and live out God's priorities. Slow down and live out God's priorities. Love, serve, and devote. Love, serve, and devote. There are so many things that practically we can leave here with today. Here's my prayer for you. That you will actually talk to one another 
as you consider the ways that Peter suggests for a church in the midst of the pushback of the world, what it gets busy doing and that you'll obey when, when God reveals to you what it is. Let's pray for help. The idea of suffering is not a comfortable one for us, God. In fact, we wouldn't ever want it, but you, in your wisdom and your grace, allow us to go through it to reveal your glory and to transform us. So, God, I I do pray that you would prepare us for that. Clearly, you've given us enough instruction through Peter's letter here to think about it. God, I pray for uh, those in this room and in the conference center Somebody um, was confronted today, and I pray, God, that they would obey. God, somebody is feeling like they're on the edge of breaking up because the suffering's too great, and maybe it's the fact that they don't know Jesus. God, would your spirit work in their life? Would it work in all of our lives to look like Jesus even when we suffer? Amen.